Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Drew Varenkamp. If you're a fan of the ancient world, there's a good chance you might like Wonders of the World. In my podcast, I visit the great places on Earth to tell the story of our people, our civilization, and our planet. Experts and travelers like Scott from the ancient world join me to share the story of how wonders like the temples of Palmyra came to be, the people who built them, travel tips on how to visit today, and even what to eat when you're there, because, come on, you gotta eat. You can find the show wherever you're listening to this one. Check it out. Thanks to coronavirus, you've got the time. And if you can't travel yourself, at least you can imagine it. See you there. In 95 BC, two years after the deaths of Grebus and Cyzicanus, a very interesting meeting took place along the Euphrates. On one side was the embassy of the Parthian king Mithridates II, led by a man named Orobazus. On the other was a Roman praetor and provincial governor named Lucius Cornelius Sulla. They were there to hammer out a very specific issue— But the occasion was pretty momentous, because it was the very first meeting between representatives of the Parthian Empire and Rome. The meeting agenda was fairly straightforward. The upper reaches of the Euphrates flowed between the kingdoms of Cappadocia and Armenia. The king of Armenia, Artavasdes, had recently died and the Parthians wanted to install his son, the 45-year-old Tigranes II, on the throne. The reason this was a little bit tricky is that Tigranes II had spent the past 25 years as a Parthian hostage, which gave the impression he might have Parthian sympathies. For his part, the future dictator Cornelius Sulla was installing a king in Cappadocia, And the situation there was a bit more complicated. You see, the new Pontic king, Mithridates VI, had killed the last two Cappadocian kings, then tried to install his own eight-year-old son on the throne. Neither the Cappadocians nor the Romans were happy about this, nor were they too excited about the surviving dynastic heir, Ariarthes VIII. So, oddly enough, they held a vote, and the people of Cappadocia chose a respected nobleman of Persian descent named Ario Barzanes to rule them. 
In his official capacity as pro-praetor of the Roman province of Cilicia, Sulla had been tasked with getting Ario Barzanis placed on the throne. But wait, Scott, isn't Cilicia still part of the Seleucid Empire? See, you guys have been paying attention. Again, it's a bit complicated. Cilicia is conventionally divided into two parts. Smooth Cilicia to the east and rough Cilicia to the west. A few years back, a Roman praetor named Marcus Antonius, the grandfather of the famous Mark Antony, had come to the area to fight Mediterranean pirates. While he was there, he'd annexed a portion of one of these territories to use as a forward base which basically tells you how much the Romans respected dwindling Seleucid authority. Unrelated, but kind of related, the Romans had also gained control of Cyrenaica, the kingdom bordering on Egypt. I didn't really get into it, but our old friend Ptolemy Physcon had an illegitimate son named Ptolemy Appion, to whom he'd willed the territory of Cyrenaica upon his death. For whatever reason, neither the Dark Queen, Chickpea, nor Ptolemy Alexander contested the move, which either means that Appion was universally loved, or Cyrenaica wasn't assigned much value. Either way, Appion had ruled as king of Cyrenaica until his death the previous year, when, according to Justin, he'd made the Roman people his heirs. So, the general thrust is that Rome was encroaching steadily in the north and south. But, at least in Anatolia, they were still happy to do so through friendly and allied kings. Hence Ario Barzanis, hence Sulla, and hence the meeting with the Parthians. At the end of the day, each side accepted the installation of the other's candidate. According to historian John D. Granger, the only other notable outcome was an agreement for each major power to stay on their side of the upper Euphrates, the part running between Cappadocia and Armenia, which, again, was a specific solution to a particular problem. It'd only be later that the entire Euphrates would be considered the border between empires. And really, there must have been some crazy comets flying around because kings were dropping like flies. In 97, it was Grepus and Cyzicanus. We just talked about Artavasdes, Ariarathes VII, and Ptolemy Appion, all of whom died in 96 or 95 BC. And 96 also saw the death of Aretas II, the king of Nabatea. The Nabataeans had been in a bit of a bind since Alexander Janaeus had captured Gaza back in 101, since Gaza had been the terminus of their main trade route and contact point with the Mediterranean. As a consequence, their new king, Obodas I, was spoiling for a fight. I'll also throw in that Zoilos, the tyrant of Dor and Strato's Tower, had died back in 101 which meant those cities were back on the market. At the same time, a new tyranny had been inaugurated by Heracleon, 
the senior official who'd murdered Grepus, in his hometown of Baroya, modern Aleppo. As you probably know, tyrant in this context just means one-man rule by someone lacking the veneer of kingly authority. But if you were looking for a more conventional tyrant, you'd have to look no farther than Antioch. According to the historian Appian, the new co-king Seleucus VI was violent and extremely tyrannical, clamping down on local autonomy and gouging his territories for money. Both of which kind of make sense. On the former, he was basically reversing the policy of his father, Grepus, who'd been forced to sanction independence in exchange for local support. But now that Syria was reunified under Seleucus and his brother Demetrius, it's pretty logical that Grebus's sons would try to walk that back. And taxation? Well, raising an army to conquer Syria is not a poor man's game. When he'd been gearing up in Cilicia, Seleucus had minted a huge amount of coins to pay his troops. Whether some of the silver may have been a loan, and from whom, is unknown. But Seleucus clearly felt the need to replenish his reserves. Similar to his father, Grepus, Seleucus's coins depict him with a prominent nose, which, who knows, he may have actually had. One set of coins shows him bearded, likely in mourning for his father, but the beard disappeared once he avenged him by killing Cyzicanus. Another set showed Seleucus with little horns at his temples, possibly hinting at divinity, a theory supported by his adopted title of Epiphanes, or God Manifest. In 95 BC, Seleucus learned that a rival claimant to the Syrian throne had just arrived at Eridus. Who was he? Well, of course, he was the son of the murdered Cyzicanus. And, of course, his name was Antiochus. For those keeping score, that'd make him Antiochus X. But I think it's more fun to call him Antiochus X. So, I know this is asking a lot, but do you guys remember at the beginning of last episode when Cyzicanus married Cleopatra IV back when he first invaded Syria? Well, it turns out that he divorced a previous wife in order to marry Cleopatra IV, and Antiochus X was apparently his son by that unnamed former wife, which, if he'd been born just before the divorce, would have made him around 20 years old. Why Eridus? Because there was a very important lady in residence and her name was Cleopatra Selene. Though she popped up a few times last episode, I need to put things in context. To start with, Cleopatra Selene was the youngest daughter of the Dark Queen Cleopatra III by her husband, Ptolemy Fizcon. I know, just when you think he's gone from the story, I keep pulling him right back in. In 115, at the age of 20, Cleopatra Selene had been married off to her brother, the pharaoh Chickpea. Soon after that, she'd lost her sister, Cleopatra IV, 
then her other sister, Tryphena, in the Syrian civil war. In 107, Selene had been divorced from Chickpea and married to her other brother, Ptolemy Alexander. In 103, she'd been divorced from Ptolemy Alexander to marry the Syrian king, Grepus. When Grepus was killed in 97, Cyzicanus briefly took the capital and married the widowed Selene. And when Seleucus VI had killed Cyzicanus that same year, Selene had fled to Eridus. So we're talking about someone who'd already been married to two Ptolemaic pharaohs and two Syrian kings, which, at the age of 40, made her the most esteemed royal lady in both Macedonian kingdoms. That being the case, when Antiochus X landed in Eridus, it was to ask Selene to grant him the honor and, you know, legitimacy of being his wife. Which, since she'd just been married to his father, Cyzicanus, and was also twice his age, was considered pretty funny at the time. But whatever. Selene agreed to marriage number five, and Antiochus was off to the races. The next year, 94 BC, King Antiochus X and Queen Cleopatra Selene rolled up to the gates of Antioch. By this point, Seleucus VI was so incredibly unpopular that his only option was to flee. He went up north to Mopsuestia in Cilicia and demanded money to raise an army. But the citizens just weren't having it. According to Josephus, they burned down his palace and slew Seleucus together with his friends. And that was the end of the road for Seleucus VI. But don't worry, he still has four younger brothers. His former co-king Demetrius III was still ensconced in Damascus. In fact, he was feeling so cozy there that he renamed the city Demetrius. Building on an approach begun by his father, Demetrius's coins honored local cults, including that of the Syrian goddess Atargetus. Demetrius is even said to have ritually married the goddess, casting himself in the role of the storm god Hadad. With the rising power of Semitic peoples, Judeans, Eturians, Nabataeans, and other Arab tribes, there was an increased need for Seleucid kings to appeal to their non-Greek subjects. With Demetrius holding down the south, two more brothers, Antiochus and Philip, stepped in to fill the void. Well, it wasn't technically a void. King Antiochus X and Queen Cleopatra Selene were in firm control of northern Syria. But the sons of Grepus were highly motivated to kick them right back out. In 93, Antiochus and Philip marched out of Cilicia to clash with Antiochus X. According to Josephus, before too long, the younger of the brothers, Antiochus, was overcome and destroyed, he and his army. The history books call him Antiochus XI, just to keep the tally straight, which left King Antiochus X and Queen Selene contending with Demetrius and Philip, with a fifth brother still off on the sidelines. 
The conflict continued the whole next year. But the year after that, 91, brought an interesting new development. Josephus records that Antiochus X came as an auxiliary to Laodice, queen of the Gileadites, when she was making war against the Parthians. We don't know who the Gileadites were, but according to Granger, Antiochus seems to have been reacting to a new Parthian advance westwards either along the Euphrates, upstream from Dura Europos, or through the Mesopotamian steppe from the Tigris. So, the Parthians were back. And I feel a bit bad about skimping on the career of the Parthian king Mithridates II, so let me at least touch on a few highlights. Okay, so way back in 120 BC, Mithridates had received embassies from the Han Emperor Wu of China, and negotiations had led to the opening of the so-called Silk Road through Parthia. Around the same time, Mithridates had taken an old military camp of his uncle's, right across from Seleucia on the Tigris, and begun developing it into a major Parthian city. The local Persians called it Tisphoon, but it was much better known by its Greek name of Tesiphon. Not to bury the lead, let's talk about his military conquests. As we've already mentioned, Mithridates had started off in the Persian Gulf, taking the Cherusina, Elemius, and neighboring Arab territories. He then moved north conquered northern Mesopotamia, then continued on to invade Armenia and defeat its king, Artavasdes, which is when the young Tigranes II had been carted off as a hostage. He'd then pushed even farther north, subduing the Transcaucasian kingdoms of Iberia and Albania. In 113, as mentioned last episode, Mithridates had captured Dura Europos. And, as an FYI, the city'd remained Parthian for the next 300 years. Soon after, he'd taken the title King of Kings, which sounded cool and was also accurate, since he now ruled over a dozen Parthian subkings. Most importantly, Mithridates had also won decisive victories against the Scythians. Riding out from Hecatompylos, he drove the Scythians from Margiana right back to the banks of the Oxus. He then moved south into Drangiana, which the Scythians had renamed Sakistan, retook the province, and installed a Parthian satrap. All these actions gave the Parthians a stable eastern frontier. The territories on the other side, Bactria, Sogdia, and Eracosia, were now the domain of Yueshi nomads, who'd eventually go on to form the Kushan Empire. In 91, Mithridates II returned to Syria, and Antiochus X joined Laodice, the warrior queen of the Gileadites, in defending Seleucid territory. While he went off to fight the Parthians, the sons of Grepus were too tied down to take immediate advantage. We don't know exactly what Philip was doing, but down in Damascus, Demetrius III was warring against the Judeans. 
The new Nabataean king, Obodas I, had defeated the Judeans near the Golan Heights and taken the city of Gadara. Sensing weakness, Demetrius III had marched on Shechem to challenge King Janaeus. Both sides relied on mercenaries, and Josephus records that Demetrius tried to get Janaeus's Greek mercenaries to desert, while Janaeus did the same with Demetrius's Jewish mercenaries. According to Josephus, when neither of them could persuade the other to do so, they came to battle, and Demetrius was the conqueror, in which all of Janaeus's mercenaries were killed though a great number of Demetrius's soldiers were slain also. On the heels of the battle, Demetrius got word that Antiochus X was dead. According to Josephus, he fell courageously while fighting the Parthians, just like his grandfather Antiochus VII. On hearing the news, Demetrius left his stronghold of Damascus and made a beeline for Antioch. He quickly managed to capture the city, while the widowed queen Cleopatra Selene fled south to Ptolemaeus Acco. And it's worth interjecting that while there's no solid evidence that Selene had had any children by any of her previous husbands, it's likely she went into exile with at least two sons by Antiochus X. Having ruled Damascus for about eight years, Demetrius was confident that the south would remain loyal while he took charge of the north, notably bringing Seleucia Pieria back under royal control. But while things in Syria were fairly stable, the situation to the north and south flared up with violent intensity. In Egypt, the population was still surprisingly upset about the murder of the Dark Queen by her son, Ptolemy Alexander. According to Justin, there was rioting amongst the people, and Ptolemy Alexander was driven into exile. The Egyptians then summoned his brother Chickpea, who was still ruling Cyprus, to come back and resume his pharaohdom. As you may have guessed, Ptolemy Alexander wasn't taking this lying down. First, he tried to raise an army to retake Egypt. When that attempt failed, he sailed to Rome to get some loans, then set his sights on Cyprus. This time, he not only failed, but also died, leaving Chickpea safe and secure. But there was one minor clause in his will that made things problematic. You see, likely as security for all those loans, the will now stated that, in event of his death, Egypt was the property of Rome. Now, there's no way Chickpea was honoring the will, and Rome didn't seem to be pushing the issue. But you've got to believe it was a dark cloud hovering over his reign. And speaking of Rome, oh yeah, this is a pretty big one. So, two years earlier, in 90 BC, King Mithridates VI of Pontus had expelled the kings of Bithynia and Cappadocia. Yes, the same one recently installed by Sulla. The Romans had sent in troops, restored both kings, then moved into Pontus itself. 
Mithridates had countered, defeated the Romans, then gone on to capture all of Anatolia, including Cappadocia, Bithynia, Phrygia, Mysia, Ionia, and Roman Asia. In one of the most famous incidents in ancient history, when Mithridates captured the Roman ambassador, Manius Aquilius, he poured molten gold down his throat. All that had happened in 89. But in the year of our story, 88, things kinda got even worse. Because that was the year that Mithridates orchestrated the slaughter of all remaining Italian settlers living in Anatolia. The incident is known as the Asiatic Vespers and it racked up a death toll of 80,000. In a single year, the Roman presence in Anatolia had been effectively eradicated, and King Mithridates VI of Pontus reigned supreme. Meanwhile, down in Syria, the politics and wars remained local. With Antiochus X dead, King Demetrius III decided to go for a twofer reclaim another breakaway territory, and gain at least a measure of revenge for his father's murder. As I mentioned earlier, Grebus's killer Heraklion had become the tyrant of Beroia, modern Aleppo, and also controlled a few nearby cities. Upon his death, his son Straton had inherited his tyranny. So in 88 BC, King Demetrius III marched out of Antioch and besieged the city of Beroia. Now there is one major element of confusion. Demetrius's brother Philip was somehow present in Beroia. Josephus portrays the affair as a civil war between the two brothers. But Granger points out that the sons of Grepus had zero history of infighting. In fact, it was far more likely that Philip was Straton's prisoner, which, if so, was all the more reason for Demetrius to march on Beroia. Things quickly became even more complicated, because according to Josephus, Straton called in Zizon, the ruler of the Arabian tribes, and Mithridates Sinax, the ruler of the Parthians. Zizon, or Aziz, may have been sheikh of the Emesenes, while Mithridates Sinax was likely a Parthian satrap. The Parthians, in particular, brought a great number of forces. Josephus reports that, besieging Demetrius in his encampment, into which they had driven them with their arrows, they compelled those that were with him by thirst to deliver themselves up which included King Demetrius III. Having taken charge of the situation, the Parthians dictated the terms. They apparently had zero respect for Straton, the tyrant who'd originally called them in, and took a great many spoils from the kingdom. The more serious issue was the Seleucid brothers, Demetrius III and Philip. It was decided that Demetrius III had be carted off east, the exact same fate as his grandfather, Demetrius II. 
At the same time, his younger brother Philip would be installed in Syria as a Parthian vassal king. So, yeah, technically, in 87 BC, Syria became a sub-kingdom of the Parthian Empire. While the Parthian army headed back east, with a captive Demetrius III in tow, King Philip I of Syria made his way west to Antioch. On his arrival, he dispatched his last remaining brother, another Antiochus, to rule as his co-king in Damascus which technically made him King Antiochus Twelfth. Fortunately for Philip, it was right around this time that King Mithridates II of Parthia died. While his son, Gotarzes, inherited his throne, it's also described in the ancient sources as a time of internal disorder. But no matter who was ruling the East, the recent arrangement was null and void, and Philip could feel comfortable acting like an independent Seleucid king. I mean, whatever that meant nowadays. Next time, in our final episode, we'll watch the Seleucid endgame begin with the invasion of Tigranes II. We'll watch the remaining sons of Grepus, mainly Philip, try to hold back the swelling tide, then watch the sons of Cleopatra Selene, the very last Seleucid kings, preside over the kingdom's destruction. Hello, my name is Charlie, and I host a podcast called The Almost Forgotten. There, I take a look at the lives and times of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Those who maybe you've heard only a little bit about, but who still have made an impact on our world. Mostly, I managed to fit one subject in each episode, although I have done some multi-parters. Some of those have been ancient figures, some more recent. I want to say thanks to Scott. I'm a huge fan of the Ancient World Podcast, and I really appreciate you giving me some time here. And to everyone else, I hope you do check out my podcast, The Almost Forgotten. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Ancient World. My name's Lantern Jack, and I host a podcast called Ancient Greece Declassified. Simply put, my show is about exploring the most interesting legends, ideas, mysteries, larger-than-life characters, and watershed moments from ancient Greece. In every episode, I speak with a world expert in ancient history or archaeology and ask them to explain their most exciting research in simple language, free of academic jargon. If any of this piques your interest, then take a moment to check out Ancient Greece Declassified wherever you get your podcasts or at greasepodcast.com. Thanks again.